great. Thank you, Linda. Hey, when you walked in today, hopefully near your, where you're seated is uh, this little pamphlet called um, My Heart Christ Home. And would love for a couple weeks ago, I, I mentioned it in a sermon and realized that hardly anybody had ever read it. So it's such a, it's a really old but really beautiful just little parable kind of about <clears throat> Christ coming into our lives, into our hearts. And so this is for you from the church. We spared all expense, basically, for, uh, to get this for you, and, uh, but please do take it, and we have extras. Amazingly, nobody's sitting in the front row, so um, if you uh, didn't have one near you, grab another one for a friend or whatever, but it's a great little thing. It's, it's, uh, it's really great. Um, hey, before the sermon starts, we have something we um, will be praying for. Um, prayer request was given to us yesterday from... Uh, Tamara Lemon. Tamara is a, a third grade teacher at uh, Lincoln Elementary School in Ontario, and she and one of her students was shot and killed yesterday. So a little boy named um, David Ramos, uh, I don't know if you've seen this in the news, I noticed it recently, is that uh, the mother shot the son and an older sister and also shot her husband. The husband is in critical condition, at least that I know. But, you know, you can only imagine what school will be like tomorrow in that, and especially in, in Tamara's classroom where uh, David won't be there. So uh, I want to pray for uh, Tamara. Um, if a couple of you actually would get around her, and we'll pray for her. And then she also has given me the names of the 22 students that are in her classroom, and we'd like to just lift each of those students up by name too. So, so let's, let's pray for this. So Lord Jesus... Um, Oh, we, we don't understand why these things happen and the pain and the hurt that people are experiencing and even the evil, Lord, that is around us. And so we want to pray for um, Tamara right now. We pray, Lord, you would give her strength, give her wisdom, give her great compassion for tomorrow, uh, help her to know how best to help her classroom uh, of students to deal with this incredible loss. And we also pray, pray for the uh, Ramos family. We pray for the dad and husband who is still in critical condition. We pray for the extended family who is trying to figure out what has happened and how this happened and how to move on from this. So we pray for them. And then, Lord, we want to just lift up the, the students that will be coming to school tomorrow, and uh, David won't be there. So we pray for um, Ulisa. We pray for Charlotte. We pray for Jocelyn and Alexander, um, Akaseya, for Rachel and David and Andy, Isaac. Destiny, Clara, Stephen, Alejandro, Gianna, Alana, Jared, Josel, Yasmin, Sheshiel, Brian, Edgar, and Gabriel. May you be with these um, young, young kids and help them, Lord, to um, find strength in you. We pray for the principal and pray for others in the administration at Lincoln Elementary, Lord, that you would give them great wisdom as they um, start a week unlike they had thought they would have to start. We pray especially for Tamara, that she would know your strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so I'd encourage you to continue to pray for Tamara and for her class and, and this the loss that is there. So. So uh, we're continuing a, a series um, on Let Every Heart Prepare Him Room. 
Uh, today we'll be looking at what we call the incarnation, the fact that God is with us. Um, this week I learned a new word, and I thought I'd bring it. So uh, J.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, he often employed a storytelling device called a catastrophe. There's the word right there, catastrophe. Now we all know what a catastrophe is. A catastrophe is an unexpected evil, but Tolkien added the Greek prefix eu, meaning good, to express the unexpected appearing of goodness. The unexpected appearing of goodness. He defined it this way. He said, the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings you to tears. He kind of described it also, it's as if you have a joint or a, out, of, out of alignment and it's put back into alignment and just the, the feeling of wholeness there. And, and you can see this in his stories if you know the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit or any of that, that, that oftentimes in Tolkien's stories, the, the characters will be at a place and all that is around them is darkness and there's no way out and no way to get through whatever is ahead of them. And then all of a sudden, the eagles will swoop in for rescue or the riders of Rohan will arrive for the battle or Gandalf, the white, appears at the breaking of day and, and the goodness has appeared. I love that. The unexpected appearing of goodness. And that really is what Advent is about. That is what Christmas is about and what the incarnation is about is this unexpected appearing of goodness. And we'll get to that and we'll get to the scripture that was actually shared earlier from Isaiah 7 but to get there first, we have to first go and talk about the really, really, really bad king, Ahaz. So if you have sermon notes and you want to follow along, that is where we are in this. So Ahaz became king of Judah in around 735 BC, and he ruled for 16 years. And he did not follow the ways of David or the ways of his Lord. And he took the people of God away from away from the Lord, away from Yahweh. He made idols for them to worship Baal. He sacrificed at least one of his sons in the fire to the gods. And this was a man that continuously took his people away from, away from God. So the nations of Israel and Aram uh, wanted him to join an alliance, the three nations together, to fight against Assyria. Assyria was a major power of that day, and they were starting to march in towards those countries. But um, Ahaz said, no, I'm not going to join your alliance. I'm not going to be a part of this. Um, and in fact, he went to Assyria around their back and said, will you protect me? Will you, the major power, protect me? Because the other two nations, once they found out that he would not be a part of their alliance, they fought against him and his people. And so Judah was overrun. A lot of land was taken. A lot of um, people were killed. But Jerusalem was still in their control, the major city. And so Ahaz is in Jerusalem, and that's where Isaiah comes and talks to him. Yeah, um, Isaiah comes to the pool and the aqueduct in Israel or in Jerusalem. He brings his son along, whose name means a remnant will return, and he talks to King Ahaz. And he says, Ahaz, you, you have to trust God. Don't trust Assyria. Trust God in the midst of this. And Ahaz is like, no, 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 no. I'm going to trust Assyria. I've already talked to them. I've already opened up the treasury and of the temple. I've already shown them what we have, what we'll pay them, we'll do that. I'm trusting the nation of Assyria. And Isaiah is like, no, you have to trust God. Ask God for a sign. 
And Ahaz is like, no, 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 I don't even need a sign. I'm trusting Assyria. And then Isaiah chapter 7 says this. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. And the prophecy continues, Isaiah says, that within three years, those two other countries that are coming against you, that you want this other country, Assyria, to take, they will be destroyed. They will no longer be around. You should trust God. And Ahaz was continually saying, no, 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 I'll trust Assyria. So 730 years after this prophecy, after this, what Isaiah has said, the Lord will speak to a young man in a dream. Young man's fiance has just come to him and told him that she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph really loves Mary and he doesn't want the full extent of the law to come upon her and, and what could happen to her for someone that's committed adultery. But he will quietly call off their engagement. He will quietly call off the covenant of marriage that they have made with each other and with their families have made. He doesn't want to embarrass her. But then the Lord says to him in this dream, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means, God who saves. And again, God is coming to this man, Joseph, and is saying the same thing he said to Ahaz. Trust God. Trust God in the middle of a situation you don't understand. And so Joseph does. He trusts God. Uh, Matthew, who is kind of the one writing this biography of Jesus, says this. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Matthew looks back and see, remembers, the, remembers the prophecy from 730 years before and says, this is coming true in our day. This is what happened. The virgin will give birth to a son and we will call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel does mean God with us. It is this picture of what we call the incarnation the incarnation is that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, left the glory of heaven to be born as a baby, to put on flesh and be what we cannot truly understand, 100% man, 100% God. But it's this incarnation that God put on flesh. Again, J.R. Tolkien calls, I love this statement, the incarnation of Christ, the you catastrophe of human history, right? The unexpected appearance of goodness is the incarnation. And then he says the resurrection is the you catastrophe of the incarnation. That God is continually coming along and bringing this appearance, this incredible unexpected appearance of goodness. And it's what we call the incarnation. It's what Christmas is about. It's what this whole Advent season is about. Uh, Paul talked about it this way. He said uh, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. 
I like how J.B. Phillips translates this little verse saying, Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. That we truly can't see God with our own eyes. We cannot know what he is like just from our eyes and all that. But as we look at who Jesus is, we look how he treated people, how he loved people, his character, that you get a picture of this is what God's like. If you want to know what God is like, take a look at Jesus. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, starts their letter out this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Again, if you want to know what God is like, you take a look at who Jesus is. You see what he did and how he acted and what he lives. The incarnation shows us so much. You know, um, a lot of people have different views on God. Some people don't even believe that there is a God, right, and that we're all just kind of a big uh, mistake or accident that happened. Uh, some people do believe that there's a God that created the world, but then he kind of got busy doing other things and he's kind of forgotten and doesn't want anything to do with that world. He's off doing other things. Some people believe, yeah, you know what, I do think there's a God and, and he knows what's going on, but he doesn't, he's not really acting on what's happening in our world. But the incarnation tells us something very different. The incarnation and Advent and Christmas and all that we're talking about tells us this, that God cares, that God really cares, that yes, God created the world, he's involved in what's happening, and he actually cares what's happening to his people. In Luke chapter 7, there's a really uh, beautiful encounter that um, Jesus has with a woman. Uh, this woman is a widow, she's lost her husband, and recently her only son also has died. And it happens in this little city called Nain. And uh, as I've read about Nain, there's only kind of one road into Nain and one road out, the same road. And, and uh, in Luke chapter 7, it describes that Jesus and his disciples are walking into Nain while this woman and the mourners that are around her are walking out of Nain. And you can imagine the feelings that are part of this group here, right? The hopelessness and the despair and the anger and even the fear that these people are experiencing. This woman who's already lost her husband has now lost her only son. How will she survive? What will she do? How will life continue? And so these two groups meet, and there's a really beautiful, beautiful statement where it says that Jesus' heart went out to the woman, that he has this incredible compassion for her, that he cares. And then as the group is coming forward, Jesus stops them by putting his hand on the casket which you would never do as a holy person. Because once you touch something like that of death, you were considered unclean, but Jesus doesn't care. So he touches the casket, he stops the casket, and he says, a young man, I say, get up. And the young man sits up in the casket. And then a really beautiful statement again that it says, then Jesus took the man and gave him back to his mother. He reunited them, he brought them, reconciled them back together. And, and then the crowd says something, verse 16. It says, they were all filled with awe 
and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. Isn't that a great statement? God has come to help his people. That God cares. God cared about this woman. And, in, and here's the thing, we have to, God cares about what's going on in your life. That's what the incarnation says to us. That God cares. And God cares about the joys that we're experiencing. He cares about the struggles we're having. And he cares about the really difficult stuff that's happening. But that God truly does care for what's happening in your life. So the incarnation shows us God cares. The other thing that it shows us is this. That God identifies with us. That, that the Son of God became a human Again, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, it says this, Therefore, since we have such a high, great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Aren't those great statements there, right? That we have a high priest who is, he is not unable to sympathize, empathize with our weaknesses. He understands what it's like to be a weak human being. He understands what it's like to be tired. He understands what it's like to have friends desert you. He understands what it's like to be hungry at times. All that. He understands our weaknesses. And he's also been tempted in every way, as we have been, yet did not give in to sin. But he has experienced everything we have. He identifies with us. You know, in the uh, study guide that uh, Linda Miller put together for this series, there's a really beautiful story in there by, from um, a book that Max Lucado wrote called uh, Next Door Savior. Um, if you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to read it sometime. But um, it's a story about a man who, um, uh, house caught on fire, his parents were still in the house. He went back in to try and save his parents, but he could not save them. And in the course of trying to save his parents, he was burned and he was um, disfigured. And he became so um, angry because of what happened, but also so embarrassed with his disfigurement that he didn't want nothing to do with anybody else. He felt that it was kind of God's way of getting back at him for not uh, being able to save his parents. And he wouldn't even speak to his wife or see his wife. And they continually tried to get him to go to doctors and to go to plastic surgeons and all that. And he's like, no, no, I can't. I don't want to do that. And so finally, the wife goes to this plastic surgeon named Dr. Maxwell Maltz, who's one of the best of his day. And she explains to him what has happened. And he says, oh, I, I'm quite confident that I can fix his disfigurement, that I can, um, with what I can do, I can bring him back to look like he was before. But then the wife says, no, that's not why I'm here. He, he won't come and see you. He won't even see me. What I want you to do, Dr. Maltz, is I want you to disfigure my face so that I will look like him. And he will know how much I want to be with him. 
And Maltz goes, well, I, I can't do that as a doctor. But he goes to talk to the man. And at first, the man is resistant and says, I don't want to see you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And then he explains, well, let me tell you what your wife asked me to do. Your wife asked me to disfigure her face so that she would look like you. And that slowly started to melt the man's heart. And he does come out, and he does allow the doctor to fix him. But Lakato says this, the way that the woman felt for her husband is the way God feels about us. But he didn't more than make the offer. He took on our face, our disfigurement. He became like us. Just look at the places he's willing to go, feed troughs and carpentry shops and badlands and cemeteries. The places he went to reach us shows how far he will go to touch us. He loves to be with the ones he loves. That God would identify with you and I. He would understand us in our weaknesses. He would even identify with us in our temptations. That he would identify with us so that we would know how great he loves us. So, the incarnation shows us how much God cares. It also shows us that God identifies with us. The third thing that it shows us is that God saves. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, Paul puts it this way in verse 21. It says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, a couple of weeks ago I talked about the... Um, Chilean miners who were trapped underneath and the incredible rescue effort that it took to, to save these guys and that for 15 days they were on their own down there and all that. But I said that the greatest rescue of all time, the greatest rescue effort of all time is what God has done for us. That, that lost in our sin and darkness that Christ would come and Jesus would take on our sin, that the only one who's ever been sinless would take on our sin and go to the cross as a sacrifice for us. That he would rescue you and I. And that we have been saved by God. That ultimately is what the incarnation's about. That's what Advent and Christmas is about. It's about God's great rescue of you and I from sin. And he, and he has saved us not only so that our sins can be forgiven and not only so that one day we might get to heaven and be in heaven, but, and this is the kind of the fourth point, is that we have been saved because God desires to be with us and ultimately the incarnation is all about the truth that God is with us. Have you ever tried to imagine what it would have been like to walk with Jesus? Right? I mean, uh, a friend of mine once uh, talked about a book he'd read called uh, saying that God is a three-mile-an-hour God. Have you ever thought about that? Because that's about how fast you can walk. Oftentimes, we are much faster than three miles an hour, right? But God, Jesus, just walked. We, we have nothing in the scriptures about him riding a horse or doing anything. He, he walked three miles an hour. And what would it have been like to actually walk with him? We don't have everything recorded in Scripture. We have some, but man, there must have been lots of days where it's just kind of walking and laughing and enjoying life and talking about what's happening and seeing that happen over there and talking about it and lots of time just walking in silence and sitting down and eating a meal together and 
saying, oh, yeah, this tastes really good. I mean, just living life. That that ultimately is what the incarnation shows us, that God really just desired to be with us. Not to get anything from us, not for us to get anything from us, just to be with him, just to enjoy his presence. That that is what the incarnation also shows. There's lots of ways God could have saved us. There's lots of ways he could have told us about himself. And yet he, he comes as a human to be with us. So because of all these things, because God cares and he identifies and he saves and he desires to be with us, what is life with God all about? That's our response to the incarnation. What is, what's, what's life with God? There's a quote on your um, sermon notes. It says, Christianity is not a new way to think. It's not a religion or a philosophy. It is a relationship with a person. And, and I made up that quote, okay? I just want you to know. So don't, like, go off today and say, oh, I think J.R. Tolkien said uh, Christianity. No. no, I just was thinking about this. As I'm thinking about this sermon, thinking about what does it mean for God to be with us and what does he want from us? I said, I just want people to know this. It's not a new way to think. It's not a religion or philosophy. It is a relationship with a person. It's what Advent means. From the beginning of Genesis all the way through Revelation, it is God's desire to be with his people. In Genesis, it talks about how Adam and Eve were in the garden and that God would walk in the garden often. It's this image of them walking together in the garden. And then you go all the way to the end of the Bible, to Revelation, it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, and it says that God will be with his people and they will be with him. That that is what God desires. It's this incredible mystery that Jesus talks about that we are to abide in him that we're just to be with him. We are to practice the presence of God and that we're not supposed to kind of segment my life into, well, this is my spiritual life and this is my unspiritual life and this is my life with God and this is just my regular life. No, it's all together. It's supposed to be all together. Just being with God. So I think I've mentioned this and most of you probably know that my... um, my mom passed away in March, and uh, it was a long fight with Alzheimer's and all that. But um, recently, my sisters went through a bunch of stuff that my dad had, and he didn't want it anymore, a bunch of books and things like that. And they passed some of it on to me and said, hey, take a look at this, see if you want anything. And most of it I just kind of got rid of. But, but there's this little journal thing I found, and it's from Young Life. My, it's from um, 1989. And Young Life had sent this out, and they were asking donors and stuff to pray for the ministry and all that. And, and so this is my mom's, and um, it's from Thursday, March 16th. And, and everyone has like an opening prayer and some scripture to read and then something about the Young Life mission statement and stuff. But then there's this place where you can journal. And, and I had no idea my mom would do stuff like this. So parents... Let's make sure our, our kids know what we do spiritually. I, it's just a good thing to do, but I didn't know my mom was doing this. So here's what my mom wrote on that day. 
How good it feels to have God within you so that you are never alone and divine order is always a part of my life. Continue to nudge me so that divine order stays in my life. How good it is to know that God is within you and you're never alone. Isn't that great? You're never alone. It's kind of what Jesus talks about in terms of praying without, or what Paul talks about, praying without ceasing, having constant communion with God, that I start my day with a realization that God is with me and I acknowledge that he is with me throughout my whole day. And that's what he desires. I read about this uh, this week too. In 1982, uh, uh, Reverend Billy Graham was um, interviewed on the Today Show, I guess. And uh, so he, he drove to the studios and he, he got to the studios and uh, the, one of the production managers met one of uh, Dr. Graham's assistants and said, um, hey, we have put together a, a special private room for Dr. Graham where he can pray uh, before the taping of the show because we're sure that he'll want to pray. We just know that's what he'd like. And the uh, assistant for Billy Graham said, um, you know what, uh, that really it's not necessary. Uh, Dr. Graham doesn't need a private room. And the production guy was like, what do you mean? He doesn't, doesn't he want to pray before the, before the taping? And then the, the assistant said this, uh, Dr. Graham started praying when he got up this morning. He prayed while eating breakfast. He prayed on the way over in the car. And he'll probably be praying all the way through the interview. That, that we can have this ongoing communion with Christ. That we can have this ongoing conversation and communion with our God, no matter what might be going on during our day. Whether you're at school, or you're at work, or in your family, or wherever you might be, that the fact that God is with us and we can be with him means we can have this communion continually with him at all times. The last sort of statement on the study guide or on the sermon notes is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This comes from the Westminster Catechism, which is a group of questions and answers of faith. The question is really, what is chief, man's chief end? Mainly meaning, what is, what's the most important thing in life? What's life really all about? And the answer is our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So my question for us is, are you enjoying your time with God? Do you just enjoy being with him, knowing that he cares, right? Knowing that he identifies with what you're going through, knowing that he he's, has saved you and that he's with you and he so desires to be with you. From Mary Dirks, to Billy Graham, this is what it means to be with God. He's with you every moment of your day and so desires for you to acknowledge him, to know he's there, to enjoy his presence. And that, I believe, really is what Advent and what Christmas and what the Incarnation teaches us. That God is with us. Let's pray.
So, Lord, um, hmm. we're so grateful that Jesus left the glory of heaven and, and came to earth. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we would really experience what it means that you are with us. And that throughout our day, no matter where we find ourselves, in what sort of situations we find ourselves, that we would know that you're there. Lord, you are even there when we give in to temptation. You're even there when we get in an argument. You're even you're there in all times. And we pray, Lord, that we would recognize that and realize that. And that the fact that you are with us would honestly bring us great joy. And we would really learn what it means to enjoy your presence. So, this Christmas season, meet us. Meet us where we're at. Remind us that you're there. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.